1: The podcast. If there is one thing we have learned over the past 25 years, it is that life can change in an instant. In the amount of time it takes to replace a light bulb, to put on your lipstick, to get your mail, it can happen just that fast. Nobody knows that better than Lori and Chris Koble. What happened to them has us all shaking our heads in utter disbelief. It is a story of unimaginable loss, unbelievable courage, and an undeniable miracle, a twist of fate that will make the little hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It starts with the worst day of
3: their lives. We knew when we first got married that we definitely wanted kids right away.
2: Well, we were definitely, uh, I think, best described as a goofy, fun-loving family. And there was plenty of dancing and silliness and
3: laughing. and I think we just like to have a lot of fun. Oh, here's your crazy sister coming to do it too. It was the day after Kyle's birthday. My mom was with us that day, and we wanted to go somewhere and do something fun. We decided to go to a local shopping center that had a Ferris wheel, and Kyle wanted to go on the Ferris wheel. We went on the merry-go-round, went to the pet store, everything that kids love to do. It was getting pretty close to nap time, and the kids were kind of starting to get tired. So we uh, backed the car up, got on the freeway, and started to head home. While we were driving home, Emma and Katie were watching a movie on TV. And Kyle was playing with a new Nintendo DS he just got for his birthday. After 10 minutes being in the car, I was stuck, stopped in traffic. And I turned around to check on the kids. And that's when I noticed that Katie was falling asleep. So I reached back, and I tickled her toes. And that was one of the last things that I remember.
1: A big rig truck loaded with 40,000 pounds of cargo slammed into Lori's minivan at over 55 miles per hour. Lori was knocked unconscious. But her mother, Cindy, who was also in the car, remembers
0: everything
4: Metal bending and crashing and crunching and it was the worst sound I've ever heard in my life.
3: Nine one one emergency. What are you reporting?
1: Hi, uh-huh. it's a really bad car accident. We think there's a couple of the stuck in the car. Please us. Really.
2: It was most horrific accident I've, I've ever seen, and it just happened so quick. Oh, All I could think it was, "Oh my God, how are we going to get these kids out of here as well?" And I couldn't, I couldn't
3: get him out. The next thing I remember is waking up on the side of the freeway.
1: Lori had a severe concussion. Her mother, Cindy, had broken ribs. They were taken to one hospital. In order to handle all of the trauma, Kyle and Katie were taken to another. And four-year-old Emma went to a third. Chris was at work when he received the devastating news. Doctors wouldn't tell him anything until he got to the hospital. I
2: literally ran to the emergency room at that point. They took me back into a small room, and uh, the doctor told me, uh, I'm sorry, but Katie has expired. A few more minutes went by. They told me there was a call from uh, the doctor from Saddleback Hospital. And uh, I got on the phone, and the first thing I said was, please tell me Emma's alive. And he said, I'm sorry, but Emma has expired. So uh, I just dropped the phone. I just couldn't believe that was happening. It's almost like my world went black at that point. You know? Emma was at a third hospital, you know, 30 to 40 minutes away from where we were. I was one of my own children. I couldn't even make it to that hospital with everything going on.
1: Chris had to tell Lori that Emma and Katie had died.
3: I just remember screaming, and I didn't know how I could be alive, and they could have died. And I asked about Kyle. They didn't know if he was going to make it. I didn't want Kyle to be alone. I didn't want him to be scared when he woke up.
1: Chris rushed to be with Kyle, his only remaining child.
2: And I could see Kyle on a bed with lots of equipment around him, and he was laying there with his eyes half open. I had some hope for a moment that maybe he'll survive. So uh, the doctor talked to me and, and pulled me aside. His brain hadn't been receiving any oxygen and he wasn't coming back. And he suggested to stop life support. So we decided to get Lori transported and so we could say goodbye together to Kyle. I got to hold his hand and talk to him and spend time with him, telling him I'm sorry this happened. wish I could go in his place. wish I could change things. Brushing his hair back and holding his hand.
3: His eyes were open, and I thought he was alive. I thought they were all wrong.
2: She's climbing out of the wheelchairs the best she can to hug Kyle. And, uh... Thing. he's got to go be with his sisters now. The sisters are waiting for him. And so we stopped life support. The machines went dark and the room went dark and I uh, held my hand on his chest and uh, until his heart stopped beating. he was gone.
1: Well, it's obviously very difficult for Chris and uh, Laurie to share their story, but I have to believe that they will inspire everybody watching today and help us all understand that it is possible, no matter what you are facing right now, somehow you can keep going and put one foot in front of the other. Thank you both for being here today. How were you even able to breathe after that? I mean, how... I'm sure that there was a period of complete numbness where you were just walking through your life.
3: Yes, I think I was numb for, for months mm-hmm. afterwards, for, for years. I'm mm-hmm. still numb at times. mm mm-hmm.
1: um, This was three?
3: Three and a half years ago. Three and a half years ago. It was hard to get up, to do your daily routines, mm-hmm. to even take a shower,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you, you somehow Just do it. We did it for them.
2: Well, you know, you're obviously in shock for weeks and Mm -hmm. disbelief and, Mm -hmm. you know, denial would be the most descriptive word probably. Yeah.
1: Because when you wake up, you still can't believe that it happened. You're hoping that it was a nightmare
2: Yeah, the worst
1: nightmare you ever had.
2: Every morning, you just wake up and you were happy to be asleep just for some period of time so you could get away from the crushing feeling of, Brief. Mm-hmm.
1: So when the worst thing possible you can imagine happens to you, how do you begin to move forward with the rest of your life, no matter what you're dealing with in your life? I hope that today, Lori and Chris's story will be your guide um, to know that life can get better, that it, it's going to be OK, it's going to be OK.
3: I think it took a while to really sink in that this had happened
2: kind of moving through life in a complete fog at that point. You have no desire to eat, no desire to drink, no desire to sleep.
3: It really started to sink in when we had to pick out caskets, decide where they were going to be buried. You're picking out
2: not one, but three caskets, you know, for all your children.
3: There's really no words to describe that. It was the day before the funeral, we did a viewing. We got to go see the kids one last time. They opened uh, the doors and in the back of the room, just three little caskets, kind of in a semi-circle. You're going through this and it's like a dream. You just wanna wake up, but it was reality that They weren't coming back, and they weren't laughing anymore. I can still hear their voices. I spent a lot of time in their room, smelling their bed, (laughs) smelling their clothes.
1: We wanted to tell the Coble's heart-wrenching story today, not just so that we could be voyeurs in their lives, but because. Of their strength and their ability to keep standing, to actually get up and put one foot in front of the other every day. So incredibly, I hear that you were able to actually speak at your children's funeral.
2: Well, while it would have been easy to sit in the congregation and and not, you know, try to face something and do something that difficult, uh, facing the hard things is what you have to do in this situation. just can't sit back and let it consume you. You kind of have to look in the face of, yeah. you know, the guilt and
1: walk through the pain. Walk through the pain. Yeah. Walk through the pain. And so I think it's so important to be able to not just acknowledge their lives, but to be able to celebrate and honor their lives. That's part of what we want to do here today in memory of them because I think it's so Easy for people to get focused. I learned this actually from a show we did a long time ago with Dr. Phil, that people get focused on the on the day of the death. And the memory plays over and over and over in your head of the day of the death instead of the life that they had to give, even in their short you know, short five years, four years, um, two and a half year span, the life that they and the light that they brought to you.
3: Yes, yes. The day of the accident played over in my head for for years, mm-hmm. and it, it was difficult. And it played over and over, and when I'd close my eyes at night, that's what I'd see. And after some time of doing that every night, every day, their lives started to kind of to live again in me. Mm-hmm. I started to, to feel them again and remember the happy times that we mm-hmm. had together.
1: I know you told our producers that you had thought about ending your own lives, and you all made a pact. Yeah. What was the pact?
3: Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah,
2: the, the pact was that when we, wouldn't, when we go to sleep some night, we're not going to wake up and sneak away and, and do something to leave the other one. Mm-hmm. So as much as, you know, to some degree you want to be with them and at the same time end this, you know, constant feeling of grief, you could easily, you know, consider taking your own life and mm-hmm. maybe it'll be better in the sense that you'll see them again. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're leaving the other person.
3: So that's, you know. We promised not to leave each other alone. Mm -hmm. We were the only ones understanding what we were going through. Mm -hmm. And we weren't. Even though you had enormous support from friends and family. I hear everybody in the
1: neighborhood wrapped their trees with pink and blue ribbons.
3: Yes, yes. It was wonderful and amazing. And they held us up. But at the end of the day, Chris was really the only one that understood what I was going through. Mm -hmm. We lost our kids. And although our family and our friends were there for us, Mm -hmm. their children were still alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Was it hard to
1: see children on the street? Was it hard to see other children playing? Was it hard to hear the laughter of other children?
3: It was. It was difficult. We have tons of kids on our street, and kids are always playing in the street. And we'd close our windows, we'd go in the back of the house, so we didn't have to hear the laughter.
5: Mm-hmm. We
3: went away um, on Halloween just mm-hmm. to get away, so mm-hmm. we didn't have to hear the kids coming in and knocking at the door. Mm-hmm.
1: And I heard you say that you d- don't, didn't like it and still don't when people say time heals all wounds. Well,
2: yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that, Uh, people will try to comfort you with. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nothing you can say to make them feel better. And usually, you know, all these statements like, well, time heals all wounds, and things happen for a reason, Mm -hmm. those kind of statements usually make the person that you're talking to actually feel more angry because they feel more isolated. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I remember Phil used to say that time, Dr. Phil, that time doesn't heal anything, it's what you do with the time you know, and that the memory never changes. The memory doesn't heal the memory.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: When a tragedy like this happens, we've seen how it can uh, often rip marriages apart, you know, or bring it closer together. So what happened here? Well, I can see what happened here. (laughs) What, what, What happened here? Was there a time when you were angry with her or you were angry with him? Was there...? Because part of the stages of grief is to be angry.
3: Yeah. Yes. We were definitely grieved at different times. So we were at different stages throughout the grief. And I was... Angry with Chris at times, he was angry with me, but at the end of the day, we came together.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and that was a decision. Was that a decision at the beginning? Did you did you understand how people are torn apart and say, no matter what, we're not going to kill ourselves. Number mm-hmm. one, and, and then we're going to get through this.
2: Well, we started going to counseling right away because mm-hmm. we knew we were in over our heads entirely.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: if if there's one thing counseling taught me, and you know, before this, I may not have said I was all that interested in talking about my feelings, you know, mm-hmm. typical guy response maybe. But what counseling taught me was that you need to engage and keep those lines of communication open with your spouse. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy after this to say, oh, I, I don't want to mention anything or I don't want to tell her how I'm feeling because it, maybe it'll make her cry or make her feel upset. Mm-hmm. And that's the complete opposite of what you need to do. So if, you know, the divorce rate is much higher for parents who've lost a child, and I think that's because communication is just completely shut
1: down between yeah, the two and... Yeah, I would say yeah, communication and people shut, because people shut down. Right. Yeah. Lori's mother, Cindy, is here, and she says that she can't believe how strong Lori and Chris have been throughout all of this, really. Yeah. I was... Uh, well,
4: I still am amazed by their strength. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning, I was so worried about my daughter and Chris. And one day I went over to their house, because she wasn't answering the phone, wasn't answering her cell phone. And I started to think maybe, you know, maybe they're going to hurt themselves or do Mm -hmm. something because I know how much pain I was in Mm -hmm. losing my grandchildren. And I was in so much pain thinking about my daughter, what Mm -hmm. she had to go through and to lose her children and, and Chris. And I went over to their house. And I have a key to their house. And I went in, and I was so afraid. You know? Of what you would find. Yeah. So afraid. I went upstairs first. And then I came back down and I went in the garage. I could hardly even open the door. And then and then the car was gone. So I thought, okay, you know, they're maybe they're gone. Of course, then my mind goes to somewhere else, mm-hmm. what they could be doing in the car. And then Lori called. I was on my way home, and she called, and they had been out. Together, and she called, and I was hysterical. So she said, "Come back to the house, you know." And then now they're comforting me. I was supposed to be comforting her, you know. And then now they were comforting me, but I was so afraid for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Did you all make that pact to each other because you were being open enough to share that I'm thinking of killing myself? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah definitely. Yeah.
2: Really. So that's the kind of completely open nature you need to. Have It's you basically no holds barred, speak what's on your mind. Mm -hmm. And it turns out in this situation, you know, your spouse is exactly on the same page, so these Mm. thoughts aren't exactly...
1: Foreign. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And had you not had gone into counseling immediately, had someone not told you that, do you think you wouldn't have been able to verbalize that? Or you wouldn't have verbalized that, been open enough to say, look, I'm really thinking of...
2: Right, right. I think, right. I think you probably would probably shut down and mm-hmm. not... I mean, my initial in- instinct was to not talk about it, because mm-hmm. I might make her upset and,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: unless you're taught otherwise during counseling.
1: Right. You don't know. Right. Were you all able to still go through the daily routines of, you know,
3: moving through life, going back to work? You were a stay-at-home mom. I was. I was a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. So Chris stayed home from work for about six months, mm-hmm. which was great for me because it helped the loneliness, the quietness. He was there. Even though it was definitely still quiet without mm-hmm. the kids, he was there. There was someone else Yeah, I was going to ask you
1: about that. I was going to ask you, because when you've had three kids, all under six years old, in your house uh, for the past you know, five years, when I would think the silence would be deafening.
3: It was. It was. Our house was always loud. There was music playing, the TV playing, the kids playing a game, you know, someone laughing, someone fighting. Mm -hmm. They they were kids, so it was always loud. And then we came home to a house full of toys and their... all of their items, their beds, and it was quiet. They weren't there. And it took a long time to adjust Mm -hmm. to the quietness, to Mm -hmm. the loneliness. Kyle was an amazing kid, loved life. He was outgoing, he had lots of friends. He he was just very unique, he was an angel.
2: My fondest memories of Emma were the adventurous side of her. She was independent and brave and fun-loving.
3: She had a unique personality, she loved to dance. Emma was always bouncing around.
2: Katie was our little handful. She was the youngest, of course. uh, She was very outgoing and uh, loud.
3: (laughs) And she would dress up as a princess, and she'd put on her crown and her shoes and dance on this little mat. Hi,
2: Daddy. When you you come in the front door and three children are, are sprinting to get to you first, I have to open my arms big and catch everybody at full speed and give everyone kisses. So that was the best part of coming home.
1: You spent a lot of time, I know, thinking about the reason you survived.
3: I think the reason I survived was to stay here with Chris. I believe that he couldn't have made it alone. Mm. And I think that I survived so we could continue our family. Mm -hmm.
1: So three months after the accident, Lori and Chris decided to try to have more children. So first, tell us about making that decision.
3: I think that was an easy decision to make. I think we had so much fun with the kids. The kids would want us to be happy again. They'd want us to have more children.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That seemed like a very simple.
2: Yeah, we always described specific. ourselves as, at that point, parents without children. I mean, when you have three children that young, your whole lives are dedicated to them, and, and you love it.
1: Mm-hmm. right? So what happened next is, I think, a miracle. Almost one year to the day after the tragic loss of their children, Kyle, Katie, and Emma, Laurie gave birth again to triplets. (laughs) But not just triplets, two girls and a boy. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? We are thrilled to introduce you to two-and-a-half-year-old Ashley Ellie and Jay, <laughs> Ashley, Ellie, and hi. Jay. Hi. Can you say hi, Jake? Hey, hi. hi. Okay. Two and a half. You get whatever you can. <laughs> <laughs> you get whatever you can. Yeah.
3: Say hi. So,
1: do you consider it a, a miracle, also? Yes, definitely, yeah. definitely
3: a miracle. I mean,
1: really, <laughs> triplets, uh, <laughs> a boy and two girls.
2: You probably want the back story, don't
1: you? Yeah. A, little, a little story. What, what, what happened here?
2: Well, uh, we had decided we were done having children prior to the accident.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, we had to do, Daddy? we had to do it. We had
3: to do in vitro for medical reasons. Yes. And we found out that it was two girls and a boy. We took that as a sign from above and we put them, we put all back in and almost, you know, nine months later they were born. Unbelievable.
1: Do you think, you know, I always say that when somebody you love dies, it feels like the spirit of them is like an angel you know. I heard you describing, you know, Kyle as a little angel. Do you feel the spirit of them through these children? Definitely. Mm-hmm. We,
3: we see their little personalities, hi. and definitely by hi. their looks. Hi. Say hi, Oprah. Hi, Ellie. Hi. Definitely by their looks. Their yes. looks, their personalities, their mannerisms.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, they have fun together. Yeah, it's great. It brings a smile to our I face see to see that little part of Kyle, Emma, and Katie come okay. back.
1: A little part of them. Now have you, have, have you already started talking to them about uh, Kyle and Katie and Emma?
3: Yes. yes. They know that they have two sisters and a brother in heaven, and we go to the cemetery and we have picnics and
1: Really? really? Yeah. as much
3: of a picnic <laughs> that two and a half-year olds can have. Yes, as much at a as that can be. Yes.
1: <laughs> but but yeah, I guess my question is, you will integrate the lives of your children who are no longer here. Of course, with yeah. this because they still. Are a part of this family, of course, and of reason course. for these children's
2: lives. They will grow up with this knowledge. I mean, we have all the pictures up on the walls in our house still of you know, Kyle Emma, and Katie, and we look at them and every day with them, and mm-hmm. so they definitely are part, will be part of their lives. Will knowledge of, of their them. lives. It's, it's
3: amazing. So, tell us about their middle names. Um, the triplets have the same middle names as Kyle M and Katie. Mm-hmm. Um, So you carry,
1: they carry a little piece of them. They do. They do.
3: They'll never be able to know them, but they will know them through us. Mm -hmm.
1: So you're still coping with the grief of losing your three children and also now raising triplets. How do you balance
3: that? Some days we still want to crawl in bed. Some days one of us does stay in bed, and the other one, yeah, takes care of the triplets. Um, mm-hmm. The grief is still there, and it's mm-hmm. just as strong. It's just a little further apart mm-hmm. in days-wise.
1: In dates, wise But having these children, does it ease some of it?
3: Well, they'll never replace Kyle yes. and Katie, but the joy is back in the house. It's mm-hmm. back in our hearts. They fill our lives again with love and happiness and laughter.
1: Well, the man driving the truck that slammed into Lori's minivan was convicted on three counts of vehicular manslaughter and was sentenced to a year in jail. He is a father of three who told the judge that he was suicidal. So you all met this truck driver. And what happened? You know, Mr.
2: Romero is actually a very kind-hearted, gentle person. And just by telling this story, you can, you might jump to vilify somebody Mm -hmm. right away. But you know there is someone behind the wheel, and while they shared some of the blame in this tragedy, you know he just felt absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Both Lori and I got to give him a big hug at one point,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, he was—he had this incredible burden on his shoulders for so long, and uh, it, just couldn't imagine the joy we gave to him when mm-hmm. you know, we said we forgive you. We're, We're sorry this happened. We know you didn't do it on purpose." And...
3: Wow. It could have been any one of us driving a car that... So what happened to his truck? What what happened to his truck
1: that he ran into the back of you?
3: Um, I was stuck in traffic on a freeway waiting to exit. And I was about half a mile back on the freeway, um, basically in a parking lot. And there's a blind curve coming up to that exit. Mm -hmm. And I was so far back in that blind curve that he didn't see me. By the time he saw traffic, it was too late.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And that is why he slammed into
3: And that is why he slammed into me.
1: Well, one of the ways Chris and Lori want to honor the lives of their children, uh, Kyle and Emma and Katie, is by working to prevent another accident like this from ever happening again. So tell us about that.
2: As we discovered after this accident, uh, this particular roadway where the accident happened had been a problem area for up to 10 years.
1: For 10 years? 10 years, yes. So the Kobolds sued the California Department of Transportation for wrongful death, claiming that it was a dangerous highway exit. Chris and Lori lost that case and then were ordered to pay $291,000 in legal fees. And so where does that stand now? I hear you want to appeal that case because?
2: Well, yeah, we, we'd like to appeal that side of the case. So there's two appeals. There's one for the 291 and there's one for the case in general. And we have no idea if there's, if there's even any possibility of success there in those type of appeals. So we're, we're at the very beginning stages of that process.
1: What message do you want, you know, anyone at department, uh, at Caltrans who's watching, particularly somebody who can make the right decisions, and what message do you want us to take away from this? Today? Yeah, this,
2: this is important. You can, as soon as most people hear the word lawsuit, they think we're out to somehow get money from this experience. So, you know, what we discovered as this case was moving forward was the system by which Caltrans keeps our roads safe and monitors the road conditions is not effective. And I think I'm being kind when I say that. So we want Caltrans to change their procedures for how they keep our roads safe.
1: hmm There are millions of people watching today, and surely someone is living through the worst day of their life right now. What do you want to tell them?
3: I'd say hold on to your loved ones. Yeah. Hold on tight, because you're really going to need them.
1: Thank you. Your being here today made us believe in miracles even more. Thank you. So we first met Colin Goddard three years ago, just two days after that horrific massacre at Virginia Tech. Remember that one? 32 students and teachers were killed. Colin was one of the few gunshot victims that actually survived. We have a special report from Virginia Tech where... Just two days later, we did a live show about that shooting. Colin told Lisa Ling how he survived.
5: I tried to act dead like I wasn't even moving. thing okay. I know the police are uh, kicking the door trying to get in. They said, shoot her down, shoot her down. So apparently he had Killed one of the, last, one of the last bullets was for himself in the front of the classroom.
1: Holland survived and is here. Welcome. Welcome. So many uh, people I've spoken to over the years, they've been involved in some tragic event. Their, their identities become wrapped up in that sort of victimization. Did you feel that way at first?
5: At first, yeah. I mean, I've been a young professional for two years, so I haven't really had have any professional accomplishments to be called, you know, Colin Goddard the author or lawyer. Mm-hmm. It's Colin Goddard the survivor. I hope mm-hmm. at some point, though, that changes.
1: That no longer becomes your identity. But you told my producers, I know, that you made a conscious choice not to become a victim. Right. It's Just like the Cobles did. You
5: know, it's listening to their story, I could relate to so much of what they said, you know, how they felt, how they, they grieved and how they moved on. It was It was the choice of what do you do? Do you let this consume you? Do you let do you think about this all day? Like, I thought about that situation changing every single way, how I could have saved the day or how I could have been killed. And the sooner I accepted what happened happened, mm-hmm. I could then move on and, and deal with it. And so uh, what does it feel like to be shot? That's, that's very hard to explain. Um, in the situation that I was in, I was you know, in survival mode. So when I was shot, I actually didn't feel any pain. You didn't? I didn't. I felt numb throughout my entire body. Later, the fact I learned that when you're in a very stressful situation, your body releases natural endorphins as a natural painkiller. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I felt the big force of air and a sharp sting. And then when I smelt the gunpowder, when I smelt the propellant, mm-hmm. when I felt the blood trickle down my leg, that's when I came full circle with I just got shot.
1: I hear you can still feel the bullets.
5: Some of them, you know, there's, there's three still out of the four that are there. Um, two months ago, I actually had a surgery to remove part of the bullet that had surfaced. It took three years to surface. I don't know why, but you could feel it in my side.
1: Is it something you think about every day because you have the scars? Or is it, you know, psychologically something that even if you're not looking at your body, you revisit on a daily basis?
5: I wouldn't say daily, but it, it happens often. Not, not to where it puts me out of my out of my zone or anything like that gets me upset. But I do think about it. Things bring it up. I mean, if I hear about another shooting, especially on the news, that that's probably when it hits me the most, when mm-hmm. I know that there are other families now getting a phone call saying that there's one of their family members has been shot, come to the hospital, you know, getting all that that whole process. How
1: hard was it to go back into the classroom?
5: That was pretty tough. I mean, that was pretty tough for all the, all the surviving students who returned. You know, any kind of loud noise, any student who comes in late and throws the door open, you know, your heart jumps.
1: Colin's mission has become the focus of a new documentary called Living for 32, because 32 people died that day. And in the film, Colin goes undercover to expose just how easy it is to get your hands on a gun. So do you feel you found your calling doing this?
5: Well, I mean, I didn't know about this beforehand. So this opened my eyes, and it happened in a time of my life where I really didn't know what I wanted to do after college and all that. So it kind of all came together, and it was, it was also that. And also, after I heard about the shootings in Pittsburgh and in Binghamton, New York, when I was like, I, I have to address this. Like I have to do something about this. I can't just sit on the side anymore.
1: Are, are you, were you surprised every time at how readily accessible guns
5: were to you? Yeah, I mean, these guys were just concerned about the money they were going to make. You know, I've, I've been in, around guns beforehand. You know, I had shotguns, I've been to the range, I've been hunting before. I passed basic rifle marksmanship in Army ROTC. So it wasn't some foreign thing, but I didn't know that it was really that easy to buy. But when it comes to selling them, it's just like a TV or a sofa. It's just something that gets them 300 bucks and that's what they're concerned about. That wow. blows my mind.
1: So when you survive uh, a random uh, victimization, such as the, the massacre there at the school and 32 people are killed, is there a sense of drive, ambition, purpose, um, to your life that, that shifts, that changes? You know, do you think, you, because I live, now I must do?
5: Well, you know, people have told me different things like that. People have said that, you, know, you survive for a reason. There's a reason you're here. You're supposed to do something big. Or some mm-hmm. people say, you survived because God was looking out for you that day. And, and
1: so he wasn't looking out for the other 32? Yeah, it's,
5: both of those things are hard for me to take in. Mm-hmm. You know? I believe I was lucky. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. And I'm comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. He had all the cards in his hand, I say. And when he laid them down, I was one of the ones face up. So what's your ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is just to try to do something about gun violence in this country. I, you know, living for 32 is about the, not only the 32 people who were killed at Virginia Tech, but on average, there are 32 Americans killed by guns every day in this country. So 30,000 people a year, 70,000 people are shot and survive. You know, that's a huge number, and there are things we can do about that. So the ultimate goal is to try to, to make that impact, try to make it harder for the, for the dangerous people to get their guns, because as you can see, it's, it's really too easy
1: really too easy. Thank you. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, The Podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, The Podcast. And I thank thank you for listening.